Hello all and welcome back. I hope you're all having a brilliant week. And thank you as ever, everyone, for getting in touch, sharing your thoughts and opinions. The best place to do so, comment section below. And if you've got a longer story made with some pictures, you can email hi at tuesdayatdobbs.com. This is a really exciting episode for me because later on, I'm going to look into how realistic is it to buy one of the ultimate motorbikes on the road. Before I get to that, what are you all riding? We'll start with Gabriel in Sweden, who's got... Now this looks like a Generation 1 Suzuki Bandit 1200S with that front fairing in black. I love these bikes. They're so special. One of the original beasts. From Gabriel. Freddie, I have been asked by some people why I've chosen to ride a motorbike when it's so dangerous. Then I've said, if you take no risks, you will be exposed or you will not be exposed to defeat. And if you take no risks, you will win no victories. If you want better odds, you have to become a better rider, able to predict things before they happen. There will always be crazy drivers who neither see nor hear you. The way I see it is I can't control drivers but I can control how I react to them. So I need to be a much better driver than the average person. Gabriel in Sweden. On to John. This is John with his 2009 Honda Shadow Aero. Bought six months ago, 3,200 miles on the clock. Paid, I mean, the prices are incredible, 3,500 US dollars. He's over doubled the mileage and, quoting from John, will never go Harley now. And on to Phil in Norfolk finally. Morning Freddie, after you were talking about victory motorcycles, oh this is a good pairing, have a look at these two parked up here next to each other. Talking about victory motorcycles, I thought you might like to see a pic of my pride and joy. I've owned from new, that's 13 years, this 2011 Victory Kingpin 106 and that's also my classic 350 in the background. The Victory has been 100% reliable from day one and is so bloody lovely to ride. I've customized it in certain areas to make it my own, but the basics have remained. And that's from Phil in Norfolk. Phil, I hear uh, really a lot of good things about the build quality and reliability of Victory. Now I'm going to move on to another American brand. And that is your input on the Harley Davidson Pan America. I found this so interesting because I did for my bike of the week last week, the Harley Davidson Pan America. I said this, a sub £9,000 bike when brand new, it would be, let's say £18,000 or so. I've ridden one. They're brilliant. That is a huge, huge saving. But, but, a lot of you have got in touch with the reasons why they're so cheap. I'll begin with Steve. And bear in mind, I've cherry-picked three bits of insight here. It could have been much more significant. From Steve. I can understand the very poor second-hand values on the Pan America as I owned a brand new 2022 Special. After several times, the adaptive ride height didn't work and several software failures. I changed to a brand new Harley-Davidson Lowrider ST, superb, superb machine. 
onto trying to get lost. No, don't do it. The Pan America. The 2021 Pan Americas are not good. So unreliable. I had a 2022 model. It spent more time on the side of the road and in the shop. I'm really, really sad to say it. I traded it in. They are not good bikes. It kills me to say it. And I'll do one more, William. In fact, I'll do two more. This is from William. I can only speak from my own experience. The new bike cost me 18,000 pounds plus. Less than 4,000 miles, never taken off-road, full main dealer service history, all software updates done. I have replaced the battery, replacement collapsed rear shock, replacement exhaust headers, replacement alternator, replacement ECU, replacement wiring loom, replacement right-hand switch gear, and replacement keyless ride. It still will not start, or still will not reliably start, on battery tender when in the garage, randomly goes into limp mode, runs on when you switch it off. I haven't had that since my Mark II Golf. Uh, runs on when you switch it off in the dealers more than in my garage. Still, I don't know what's wrong with it. No dealers are interested in part exchanging. The most I've been offered, against the new sport guide is 7,000 pounds. Let's do one more over in the US. Four of my friends bought new Pan Americas. One returned his after a few months of continuous problems. One returned his after a couple of years during which Harley Davidson had the bike for eight months trying to fix it and failing. One returned it after two years with multiple electrical problems and one still has his, but it regularly fails to start due to electrical problems. And Harley Davidson or a Harley Davidson manager told me that they are overpriced compared to the competition and have not been updated since their first production. Unlike the competitors, I test rode one. It was fantastic, but that's not the same as actually owning one. Oh, it's, it's sad to hear it because just like JG626, I had one for two days. It was brilliant, but that is not the same as living with it. I don't know what's going to happen with the Pan America, but in Europe, it will get to a point where the reputation is so bad, Harley Davidson will not recover from it. On to bang for your buck. This is anyone wanting to get into biking or anyone who thinks biking is too expensive. Anyone who just wants to get back to the simple, easy, stress-free form of biking. Have a listen to this from Adam. I just wanted to bring to your attention that MotoGB.co.uk are selling brand new Royal Enfield Meteor 350s for £2,999. That is a brand new Meteor for under three grand, and it has to be the best bang for your buck I have ever seen. Adam, let's have a look at this. So Meteor, here it is. Meteor for under three grand. So it was £4,059. It's now £2,999. How about maybe my favourite ever bike? Royal Enfield Classic 350. That was £4,459. It's now £3,799. 
for brand new Classic 350. And I'm sure these come with three years warranty. This is so cheap, there's genuinely no point buying used. 3.8K for a, a beautiful, well-made, just glorious epitome of motorbiking, motorbike, for 3.8K with warranty with the stress-free ownership that comes with a brand new bike. I'll do one more in case you like a bit of off-roading. How about the Scram 411? Amazing bike. It was £4,849. It is now £3,699. I'm, I'm almost speechless. You, you, you would probably only be saving about £700 on most of those, maximum, if you actually buy a two or three-year-old model. They're that good value. On to Matthew. Th this is really interesting. I did about 15 minutes research about this afterwards. From Matthew. Will we see, well, will we see the end of Indian? I begin. Native Americans have been pushing sports teams, brands, etc. to dump the name Indian and any other or any of the other little tribal names, especially the racial slur names, one of which was the name of a football team until recently. If the NFL and the Major League are seeing pushback and yielding to it, and let's be clear, Freddie, they pushed back and they lost hard. It was even starting to empty their stadiums. Indian Motorcycles is going to have to change. I will not be surprised if they become Victory Motorcycles or something like that. Native, in, or Native American organizations have already been filing lawsuits. And it's true that these things get caught up in the courts for years. And sometimes there's court victories, but sometimes they lose. But ultimately, I expect Victory Motorcycles will come back and Indian will go away because younger people simply will not buy them. They can't afford them right now, but they won't buy them when they can. The fact is, one of the most successful motorcycle companies in the golden era from World War I to World War II was a symbol of cultural appropriation and racial stereotype. Uh, I'm sure this will be going on in discussions all the time internally at Indian because I remember the last time I had an Indian press bike about probably two years ago now. I, I was made to, to be completely crystal clear by the team there that I should never refer to it as Indian. It must be Indian motorcycles. So you have to add the word motorcycle on. They were very, very strong with that. I said a few times, can I borrow an Indian? They said, Freddy, Freddy, for videos, for anything else, you must refer to it as Indian motorcycle. So this is definitely something that internally is going on at Indian and they're very, very aware of this. Could we really see a day when the name Indian motorcycle has to disappear? For one, Polaris would have spent a lot of money buying the Indian name, I'm sure. But secondly, the value that goes with the name Indian Motorcycle. How does that work from a business point of view, getting rid of the name, but also keeping everyone happy? It, that's going to be a minefield and all of the names associated with it, the chief, the chieftain. Could we see a position where 
Indian as a name, Indian motorcycle as a name, is no more. On to a solid workhorse. This is from Nicola in South Cheshire. Freddie, have a look at the 2013 and 2014 Kawasaki Versus. It's a twin cylinder 650cc. The GT model has panniers. It's just an incredible bike that's ideal for touring and commuting, gives excellent comfort, reduced wind due to good screen, and importantly, it's economical. You simply do not need a bigger motor to travel unless it's an ego thing that men have. Nicola, how could you? I ride my Versus and go everywhere I want to on it. Let's have a look at this, Nicola. 20, in fact, this model I think is 2010 to 2014, so I'll be a bit more flexible with dates. 63 horsepower adventure bike, about 181 kilos. Simple, cheap, bulletproof engineering, do everything, use every day kind of bike. And I found one so easy. Fully Kawasaki, panniered up, little screen at the front, high travel suspension, so you really can use it anywhere. Three and a half thousand pounds with no issue finding that at all. 26,000 miles on the clock, and there is a bike that will just do everything you want immediately without having to modify it in any way. Commute to work, tour Europe, B-Road Blaster. Good shout, very good shout. Like that a lot. And in that color, from a dealer, three and a half grand. Really, you cannot go wrong with that. This is the point now. I'm moving on, bike of the week. Let me just take you back here about a year and a half ago. I went out with Michelin to test out a range of bikes. And the reason we were there in Valencia for the MotoGP weekend was, yes, to see the MotoGP, but more excitingly for me, was to test out a long lineup of bikes. I think we had the BMW 850, which was perfectly decent, but quite forgettable if I'm being honest. We also had the Ducati Supersport, which was perfectly decent. And I think there may have been one or two other bikes. Look, all of those bikes were fine, but there was one bike in green and black just sitting there in the lineup outside a lovely hotel in Valencia. And it was a two, 100 horsepower monster. It's just so opposite to the kind of bike that would usually interest me, but any 200 horsepower monster with a supercharger is something I'm at the very least curious about. So it was early on a, I think a Saturday morning. We all met outside, a group of bike journalists and me, and we went off into the hills around Valencia. I was on the BMW 850 initially, totally fine. I then asked to swap with someone. There was a, a lady riding the Kawasaki ZH2 and I said, please, please, can I have a go on this bike? Thinking she'd say, no, you know what, I'm having too much fun on it. And she said, you know what, I'm delighted you said that. It's just not for me at all. I'm not enjoying riding it. And she said, with these proper sports tyres on in fairly cold conditions, it feels a a bit too on the edge of my seat type stuff. So I thought, okay, well, now I'm petrified, but I jumped on it. And within the first, or for the first two minutes, I, I admit I was a bit intimidated by it. But after getting used to it for about two minutes or so, 
I, I realized that I was on one of the most special bikes from a dynamics and performance point of view I've ever ridden. It was so silky smooth. The handling was so glorious. Everything was so perfectly set up. And the power, the power going around these Valencia winding lanes, and then you get to an arrow straight bit of about 400 meters where there are no cars anywhere, mountains either side, and suddenly the road opens up as straight and arrow as you like. Nothing ahead of me, nothing at all. And I opened up this Kawasaki ZH2. And I have never experienced anything like that in my life. It was a rocket ship. It was a spaceship. It was so quick. Just that feeling, just that level of performance was one of the most unbelievable feelings I've ever felt. It must be the same feeling as being able to fly. It was addictive. It was such a good feeling that it's worth buying the bike just for that sensation. It was genuinely a feeling of flying and it's the way it delivered the power as smooth as silk, as fast as you could hold on to the bike. Limitless power. I will never forget that. But at the time, the bike was about 17,000 pounds, brand new. And I thought, well, this is not even worth considering because this is such an expensive bike, so high end. Look, just enjoy it for the weekend and then forget about it. But here now, one and a half years on, what's it like? Is it possible to find this bike that is the most sensational feeling I have ever had in any vehicle in my life. What we're looking at is the Kawasaki ZH2 pictured here. It's got 197 horsepower. I say 200 horsepower because it sounds more impressive. Let's round it up. 200 horsepower, supercharged. That's the key. This is a supercharged motorbike. Brand new 17,300 pounds. Look, that's, that's all a lot of money. It sounds horribly expensive and it's borderline quite scary. But how expensive does it have to be? How attainable is it now, a year and a half on, to be able to buy and live with and maintain and run this bike? Is it something that could genuinely be considered to own a spaceship of a bike or should it just be something that you dream of and appreciate the fact it exists in any format at all, but that you could never really buy it? Well, I found one. Let's start off with how much you can buy this for in the classifieds. Under £10,000. £9,986. This was the first point of joy for me this morning when preparing for the podcast. Under ten grand. First of all, there, boom. Huge, huge plus. Genuine excitement. Under ten grand is like that magic figure. But it's not just about buying the bike. How is it to actually live with? Well, I've seen on forums people comfortably getting 45 miles per gallon. That is the same as my Triumph Bonneville. And I know, I know this kind of bike isn't about economy, but surely it's only a good thing that it does pretty much the same as my Bonneville. So you're getting probably faster than Ferrari levels of performance, but economy figures that are similar to a hatchback. How about insurance? Now, this is where things get interesting. For uh, some form of relativity, to put things into context for you, if I put my address here in London and I'm looking for a Suzuki SV650, 
I put this bike because I thought it must be one of the cheapest bikes to run and insure. In London, third party fire and theft insurance, no excess, Suzuki SV650 would cost me £228 a month. If I'm looking exactly the same, living here in London, third party fire and theft with no excess on my insurance, that £228 from the SV650 increases to £1,934. However, what if I keep everything exactly the same, but I change the third party, so covering the other person if I crash into them, fire and theft, I change that, but I put fully comprehensive. And for those not used to this terminology, fully comprehensive means that Instead of only protecting the person I crash into and protecting it from fire and theft, I'm now also protecting myself. So a better level of cover because now I'm protecting myself from the bike. This is where things get weird. The cost then goes a year from £1,934 to £1,179 a year insurance. So you're looking at a little bit less than £100 a month to insure it, even in London, which is the motorbike theft capital of the UK. How about if I decide I want to move out, away from the crime-ridden London, and I go back to Ipswich? Well, if I'm looking at the Kawasaki on third-party fire and theft insurance, or sorry, if I'm looking at the Kawasaki H2Z insurance in Ipswich, fully comprehensive, everything covered, that's just £322 a year. I mean, that is a tiny amount of money to pay fully, fully insured for such a performance-orientated bike. How about the prices of parts, though? So I found that I can buy one for under 10k. I can insure it incredibly cheaply, relatively speaking. How about if something goes wrong? Hmm? How about if the supercharger goes wrong. This is probably the nightmare for people. What if the big bit, the expensive bit of the engine has an issue? How much do you have to pay for something like that? Well, I found one with no issue at all. On eBay, a used supercharger from a ZH2, which has only done about 30 miles, it must have been written off, for 1,100 pounds. So you'd be looking at something like that as one of probably the biggest bills potentially of the bike. Let's do one more thing here. The tires, for example, these are going to be big, beefy tires. But I found out that even the tires on the ZH2, they're a very common size for big bikes and there are a huge amount of options. And again, I found with no issue at all, a pair of Michelin Road 6 tires, that is front and rear tire, so both tires for the ZH2, £310. So what I found here is that unlike cars, and this is a big difference here, the difference between owning a fairly mid-level bike and one of the craziest bikes that has ever been made is really not too gigantic with regards to the cost to buy and also the cost to maintain. Most things seem pleasingly reasonable with the Kawasaki ZH2. So if I were genuinely in the market, genuinely, to buy a spaceship of a bike, and in the future if money would allow, 
I, I would be tempted by this for that feeling that it gives. My mind is at ease that I can do it without theoretically bankrupting myself. You get the Japanese reliability, you get perfectly reasonable cost of wheels and parts. Insurance is perfectly reasonable and road tax, again, perfectly reasonable. And I'll end it there. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching this week's episode. Have a brilliant week, all. I'll speak to you all in the next one.